0: This podcast is supported by Red Energy. Powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, Red is 100% Australian owned and local. Phone 131 806. Welcome to Tuesday with Ash Pollard. Thanks to Red Energy. 100% Australian electricity and gas. That's Red Energy. In this series, I'll be chewing the fat with my famous friends and a few foodies so we can learn more about them as human beings through their love of food. This week on Tuesday, a very special guest, opinionated baby boomer, friend and like-minded foodie, Steve Price.
1: Don't be nervous, alright?
0: right? All right, well, let's just get going. We're here with professional radio celebrity Steve Price, a.k.a. Angry Cat, as you were fondly known as in the African jungle. Do you remember that? Angry Ant. No, Angry Cat. Cat. Don't you remember the Angry Cat?
1: I tried to forget a lot about what happened in the African jungle, (laughs) including sleeping next to you for seven weeks or whatever it was. Listen,
0: I was a very, very good sleeping partner.
1: I've still got a, a sore shoulder, My left shoulder still hurts because I wanted to face away from you rather than towards you Mm. because I thought that would be the polite thing to do. Mm. So I slept on the one (laughs) shoulder for six weeks and it's still sore.
0: I'm sorry. sorry. And that's many, many years later. You laid
1: on your back and snored, so I should have just not worried about it. I
0: don't snore. I'll put that on record. I do not snore. But actually, I don't even think you do either. No, I don't. But somebody
1: did. I mean, you teamed up with the right people. Yeah. Me and Dane and Nazim. Yep. But all the girls, they had it in for you. Well,
0: Casey didn't really. She didn't have it in for me.
1: Maybe not Casey.
0: What was it, do you think, that uh, that made the, the girls sort of be a little bit sus about me?
1: They saw you as a threat.
0: Why? What is threatening about me?
1: You're fairly forthright in your opinions and you don't uh, ever let anybody uh, get away with saying something about you that you disagree with. Mm. And you were rather passive- aggressive when it came to taking control of the food situation, which I give myself probably twelve out of ten for being uh, able to moderate my emotions through that period because I went in there thinking, you were given the chef. How good a cook I am, <laughs> that I would be in charge of the food preparation. So mm. what I ended up being in charge of was lighting the fire, which is not exactly exciting.
0: No, it's not. But what I will say, and I, and I do thank you for this, is for having my back in there. You knew that if I if I couldn't cook, I'd probably end up killing someone. So, you know, you you, you practically stopped some murders from happening, I would say.
1: I've got a simple solution when it comes to food, and it's the reason why I like cooking mm. and why I like mm. providing food, because I know I can do it well. And I knew that you were a great cook. And I knew the rest of them were hopeless, and if we'd let them cook, it would have been even more awful what we had to eat than what it was
0: Well, no offense to Lisa Curry, but uh
1: you Please know don't get me started. <laughs>
0: She wasn't that great a cook and she tried to cook uh, a protein of sorts one day and uh, cooked it three different ways and therefore it ended up being as tough as a boot to eat. It was very unenjoyable. Un- as a
1: cook, she was a great Olympian.
0: A, a great Olympian. Um, now you are South Australian, born bred. Yes. Bred South Australian. Mm-hmm. And when did you move to uh, Victoria's Fine Shores?
1: Um- well, I'm old,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so when I, you know, time date these things, you're going to go. Well, I was not even born then. I hadn't gone to school, <laughs> but uh, I was a cadet journalist in South Australia, and I was made a interstate correspondent for the Adelaide News in 1976. Wow! At okay. the age of 21, uh, so I was very happy about that because I got to go. For the first time in my life on a plane. I'd never been on a plane at the age of 21. Can you believe that? Really? Things were different in those yeah, days. Yeah. Flew to Melbourne. Uh, they put me up in the old Victoria hotel in Little Collins Street uh, for a week. And then they said, you've got to find somewhere to live. And I spent 12 months reporting back to South Australia about things that happened in Victoria.
0: So do you think that you've had a career in entertainment, journalism, etc., for... Like quite a long time that it's been quite consistent because it it's a tough industry to work
1: in. forty eight years, I've been in journalism or radio or television, or I mean I, I don't call it entertainment, I guess it really is. A, a bit of now is entertainment, probably, but I just always consider myself to be a journalist first, that's what's on my passport. So <laughs> I've just been very lucky. I had fifteen years in newspapers and
0: is it luck though? 30 years in radio? I do feel like you're a hustler.
1: Not at all. I've never, ever hustled for jobs. Really? They've always just presented themselves and I've tried to do them as well as I could.
0: And why is it, do you think, that you have maintained that?
1: Um, Hard work, uh, attention to detail, uh, try not to play politics so I don't upset people. I mean, I was much more aggressive when I was younger and running Radio 3AW, that's for sure. Mm. Um, Probably a bit too aggressive, sort of behaviour that... Yeah, you know, not bullying behaviour, but we wanted to win at all costs. And so you did things then perhaps a little more aggressively than what you'd get away with doing now. And we all, as we get older, I think we get a bit softer and a bit uh, less aggressive.
0: Do you find that when you – did you find that when you came out of the African jungle hmm. after I'm a Celebrity that that changed your perspective on how you were as a journalist or a reporter?
1: I was lighter by 10 kilos. That helped. (laughs) And I think I, for a period of time, I was perhaps a bit calmer. Yes. What happened? Where did that go? I think it's still there. I don't think I, you know, when I went in there, I was probably more aggressive than when I came out. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why that experience softened you, but it probably just shows you that, you know, you want, you're very thankful that you've actually got something to do each day, because as as you will know from that experience, it, can be quite mind-numbingly boring, mm-hmm. so you always want to be busy and want to do stuff. So it was a good experience. I would never say no to it, but it's not something that I would have ever imagined that I was doing was ever going to do.
0: Now you and I had a little show on your radio show, um, which broadcast into Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, and it was called Thursday Food with Ash Pollard. It was yes. an hour. Yes. And I'd come in on a Thursday night and we'd discuss
1: food. We did.
0: We did. And um, that was... It's a
1: great passion of yours. I mean, you were famously, of course, uh, on that great cooking show. That
0: show, yeah. What was
1: it called? My Kitchen Rules, Mm -hmm. yes. (laughs) Top rating show in the country (laughs) at the time.
0: It was, yeah, it was at the time. Um, And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for that show, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. You
1: think about it, reality TV, you did Dancing with the Stars. yes. That would have been good. You did My Kitchen Rules. You did I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Yep. And then The Bachelor.
0: No, I did not do that. I did not do that. I like to say that I went on shows where you had to display some sort of talent. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to get your boobs out. What was your
1: talent on The Jungle Show? Cooking.
0: Yeah, and just being a badass bitch.
1: Remember when you got put down that hole with the snakes? Sorry to me to be reversing the interview here. but It's uh, (laughs) fine. Into that vault,
0: the snake pit, Mm. viper room. Can you believe I did that? No. No. Would you have done that?
1: Well, we all uh, we all did. You bungee jumped. Now
0: now I didn't do that.
1: That was terrifying.
0: That was terrifying. Yeah, I couldn't believe you did that. So
1: you and I both know that the reason you do these things that you would never do because it's outside your comfort zone completely is you're hungry and you want to actually provide food for yourself and for other people. I I didn't quite realise when we went in there and it probably was not for about five days in, how food dictates so much of your mental time. You know, you and I would sit there and talk about what we were going to eat when we got out.
0: We would fantasise about certain dishes at certain Melbourne
1: restaurants. Yes, steak tartare. Steak tartare at Francois. (laughs) There you go. We sat and talked and talked and talked about food. And then that stupid bag would come down and there'd be stuff in it that even a talent like you couldn't cook. Remember I mean, that piece of protein on a bone that you had to try and scrape the meat off what of? What was it, like a bock neck or something? Kudu. Oh, oh great. Makes me sick thinking about it. It
0: anyway. was disgusting. No salt, no nothing. No. You're listening to Tuesday with Ash Pollard, thanks to Red Energy. 100% Australian electricity and gas, that's Red Energy. Where did your passion for food come from?
1: I moved out of home really early when I was probably 18 and I moved into a share house like most people do and the other two blokes that were living there had no idea or concept of what it was like to cook food. Mm. And so I decided I better teach myself. And bizarrely, the first thing I re- well, the thing I remember of cooking in that share house was we once went rabbit shooting. Go figure. I've never shot anything in my life. <laughs> Three blokes with a spotlight Out in a paddock south of Adelaide with a twenty-two rifles trying to shoot rabbits. And I think we got a couple of rabbits and we took them home and thought, okay, let's skin them, which I had no part of doing that because I can't bear the thought of all the blood and gore. Anyway, the two rabbit carcasses sat there on the kitchen bench and they said, what are you going to make out of it? So I made a rabbit stew.
0: Did you really? Which
1: would have been appallingly awful. Tough but, well, yeah, rabbits not easy to cook, mm. so that 's probably where it started, and uh, you 've got to provide for yourself, and when I moved to Melbourne as a 21 year old I was in a house with two blokes another two blokes that couldn 't cook, uh, we had an Indian guy living in the in a, it was in Montague Street, South Melbourne, which in those days was not a particularly popular area for anyone to live in Albert Park. Mm. Uh, it was a two-story house. It was two Jewish guys, an Indian guy and myself. Wow. And the Indian guy had been in the Merchant Navy and knew how to cook curries. So he taught me how to cook curry and sort of the love of food went from there.
0: I love curries, but I struggle with the huge array of spices in in that culture. Like there's so much to work with. I wouldn't know where to start. And for that particular reason, I've always avoided cooking Indian cuisine, Sri Lankan even. I, I, I need to get on top of it because curries are amazing. They yeah, are I've curries party all my life. But the
1: problem is if you're in an apartment, for example, oh, pong. people come and knock on the door, excuse me, can you stop stinking up the apartment block with spice smells? <laughs> Which happens. It does. Because places smell like an Indian market. Yes. Your mum, was she a good cook? Uh, she was a country women's association type cook. Was you know? she? Well, you know what? I My mother was born those... in nineteen thirty-four, so she was a. She knew how to cook a, a roast very well. Make scones. Her probably her highlight dishes were. She was very good at homemade pasties, Cornish pasties, mm,
0: delicious. Which
1: she makes the whole mince and carrot and celery mixture and great pastry, and so that's nice. Scones were a highlight, very light. Uh, she knows how to bake, which I can't do. I can't do sweets. I know you can, but I can't mm. do sweets. Uh, that was probably, and her her secret uh, homemade trifle recipe, which she handed down. Oh. And I ended up on a show called uh, Celebrity Come Dine With Me, mm-hmm. which I won, <laughs> I might point out. Okay. Uh, and part of my repertoire in that competition was my mother's homemade trifle. Really?
0: Mm. Is it a secret recipe?
1: Not really. You would, to, you, would you go You go to Woolies it? and get a jam roll.
0: Oh. Oh. Standard. <laughs> and you, get you get some aeroplane jelly? You
1: get an aeroplane. No, I made my jelly. Oh, okay, yeah. Jelly crystals. Mm-hmm. Um, tin peaches. Beautiful. Uh, you soak the jam roll in brandy. Mm-hmm. It's pretty nice. Make your own custard.
0: You do it? Okay. Layer
1: yeah. the bowl, all that. Put a bit of chocolate dusting on top. Bob's your uncle. Perfect. Cream on top? Easy to make. Well, you can either, yeah, peaches and cream on top.
0: Oh, that's classic. That's how mm. my nan made hers. Although I do love a trifle, but I don't particularly like alcohol in desserts. I'm not quite sure why. I'm you like alcohol
1: in every other aspect of life. Why wouldn't you like it in desserts?
0: I don't know. I can't answer that, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> now, of course, in your current pregnant state, you oh, wouldn't be drinking.
0: It's very hard. tell you. It? Oh, it's so hard. There are so many things that I find myself going to eat, like cheese.
1: cheese. Soft, smelly cheese, which yep. you love.
0: Yeah, mouldy cheese. See how
1: much I remember about you having spent seven weeks with <laughs> yeah. How do I know this stuff?
0: I don't know. I guess it's burnt into your mind, isn't it?
1: So are you having pregnancy cravings? Yes. What are they?
0: Gelato. Everything, Gelato ice cream? Yes, everything sweet. I was a bit of a sweet tooth beforehand, but now I'm just completely and utterly obsessed. Like to the point where I'm so surprised I am not the size of a house. Honestly, I can't tell you. I will annihilate one litre of gelato in two days. You are feeding two people. Yeah, but they say, you know, the old thing, oh, you're eating for two, but not really because then that's how you end up humongous.
1: Any other cravings other than sweet cravings? No.
0: Once I did crave in my first trimester. Strangely, mm. and it's not something I ever eat, uh, I, would, I could only eat a Zinger burger for dinner from KFC.
1: I've never been to KFC. What is a zinger burger?
0: It's a like a slightly spicy chicken
1: like crumb chicken or something.
0: Yeah. It I mean delish, but it's not something I ever it, like how does my brain know that that's what I want when I don't eat that sort of food?
1: And did it satisfy you? Absolutely. And you haven't wanted in one since? Never. Only, see, one, one time only. Yeah. Remember in there in the jungle they rewarded us one night with KFC? I oh. hate I hate KFC. I never would eat it. And I tried to eat it in there. KFC even though will never I was, be a sponsor. <laughs> even though I was starving. Are we sponsored by KFC? No, we're not. Just as well. <laughs> uh, I tried to eat it and felt sick. What? Well, it was greasy chicken.
0: Yeah, but come on, mate. We were starving. Doesn't matter. You will not
1: I'm not a big, uh, and I don't think you are either, I'm not a big junk food home delivery food person. I've never had Uber Eats delivered ever. Ever? Like, ever. Not once in my life have I ever had Uber Eats. Now, this is a, not because, and I think this happens, mm-hmm. not because the food's going to arrive upside down and cold and, and messed about. Mm-hmm. It's because I, I find the, uh, the use of uh, those young people riding around the streets on push bikes and motorbikes in the dark delivering my dinner I find the whole whole aspect of that employment uh, it's almost like slave labor I just don't want to have any part of it recently I was living in Elizabeth Bay Potts Point in Sydney and I had a local pizza shop mm. and the the Italian family that owned it were just fantastic they've been there for a long time mm. they make really good pizza and she was just beside herself because these guys had turned up on their motor scooters with those black backpacks. And then when they got to the person who'd ordered the, you know, Capriciosa family size and, you know, a garlic bread, it would all be upside down. Yep. And so the, the person who'd bought the food would then ring the pizza joint and say, what are you doing delivering me food that is inedible because all of the olives have fallen off and none of the salami is still in place? Well, It that... wasn't the establishment's fault. Exactly. So she went out and bought bigger bags so that a family pizza would sit in it oh flat God. so that her customers weren't complaining.
0: The exact same thing happened to me with um, some Vietnamese fur, and when it was you got de- soup
1: delivered by a bloke on a motorbike.
0: Yeah, but you know, like it's wrapped up. What I had a craving, pricey. It was a craving. Go down to the shop, and he un- he undid it out of the out of his bag, took mm. it out, and it went all over. the like he dropped it all over the driveway, the spring rolls, the fur, pho- the everything. I thought, this guy, he's been driving around like a lunatic. It's all come loose. And as soon as he's opened the bag, it all just dropped out, mm-hmm. the end of it. So I call the restaurant and I complained to them. But as I was doing it, the restaurant was so apologetic and they were willing to give a, another free meal. But then I thought, no, like we're in the middle of COVID-19. This is just killing businesses. So from that point on, I stopped ordering um, delivery food and I now order it directly with the restaurant and I go and pick it up myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, you describe yourself as a millennial. Are you a millennial? I lose track of all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I am. 86?
1: I don't know. Anyway, whatever you are, uh, (laughs) people of your generation, this laziness to sit on a couch and get some poor bugger being paid 8 bucks an hour to deliver your food, for me that's just... It's not acceptable, mm. and you know, if but, they're but being paid what, properly, I mean, maybe.
0: On the flip side, though, these people need work.
1: If well, they can't get are, work, a lot they... of them are students who are just you know, upping their income by doing that. But I, I, I just think it's you know appalling Uber Eats Deliveroo whatever they are. Mm. I mean, and and the restaurants themselves. I mean, you're going to kill in particularly in places like uh, Potts Point where there's big apartment towers. Um, you're going to kill off what is a great part of Australian life, which is to go out, walk down the street and go to a restaurant. Now I know people listening to us who live out in the suburbs will say, well, it's okay for you when you're living in a city, Sydney, you can do that. Mm. Uh, We're out in the suburbs and the nearest restaurants are seven kilometre walk away. I get all that. But if we're going to empty out the hotels and empty out the restaurants, forget COVID for the moment, if we ever get back to normal, I think that's a destruction of, of the social fabric of our cities, and we don't want that. Look no. at Melbourne with those great laneways in the city with restaurants. You want them buzzing. You want people like you are when you go to New York or, or London. You want people queuing out the front to get in. Couldn't agree That gives more. you the atmosphere.
0: Mm, absolutely. Speaking of eating out at a restaurant, um, are you somebody that is passionate about table manners, etiquette?
1: Well, I've always had really good manners, so I haven't really thought about it. <laughs> To be is that according to you or is that, you know... That's no, I do. I have extraordinarily good manners. And uh, I am lucky um, that um, I've always... I guess my parents taught me, you know, how to eat properly, which I have the fork and the knife. And
0: So if you have your knife and your fork mm-hmm. and you're in, you've just cut your food, you've put your steak in your mouth mm-hmm. and you're currently um, chewing your steak, mm-hmm. uh, where are you going to put your cutlery? On the side of your plate or in the middle,
1: crisscrossed over? If I'm eating a steak, I'd hang on to them. Wouldn't put them either, in either place. Would I?
0: Hmm. I don't know if the Queen would be pleased to hear that. I don't give
1: a bugger what the Queen thinks. Oh, we're talking we're about, about Australia etiquette though, though Pricey. We're in Australia. On. Steak knife in one hand, fork in the other. Okay. The what? good thing about steak these days, I think, speaking of steak, yeah. and I think this has changed from when I grew up, you don't do that anymore. You don't actually eat a steak where you cut bits off it and eat, right? What you now normally do when I serve steak at home, if I cook a beautiful piece of ribeye or porterhouse. we are talking about ribeye
0: that's massive. You no, cut well, it.
1: Or even porterhouse. I'd slice it and serve it sliced to someone.
0: Yeah, but let's just say we're just having an eye fillet, right? Yeah. The eye fillet's not going to come to the table cut up for you because it's small.
1: I wouldn't. I, I think I'd hang on to the knife and fork, but I'll. I'll tell you when I next have a steak and let you know.
0: <laughs> Phones at the dinner table.
1: Um, it's almost impossible to avoid now. I mean, sadly.
0: What about your kids?
1: Yes. Um,
0: How do you manage the One girls? obsessed
1: and one not.
0: With the phone?
1: Mm-hmm. So Oldest have- one couldn't put her phone down. Youngest one uh, not so fussed and much more of a foodie and so she would probably... Uh, Prefer people not to have a telephone at the table. You'd be your phone person on the table for sure. You can't put your phone's never out of your hand.
0: No, it's not out of my hand. How but- did
1: you cope with that when we had that experience? Fine, in the jungle.
0: I was perfectly fine. You didn't have nope.
1: phone withdrawal.
0: No, nope. in fact, I loved it. I absolutely loved the fact that I I, I wasn't addicted to Instagram at that point. Uh, the 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 break from social media was much needed. Yeah,
1: a mental break.
0: Oh God! It's just like it's—it ruins you. It absolutely ruins you. So um, now I want to know because you are a bit of a
1: foodie yourself and self-proclaimed. You do pass- self-proclaimed. I won. Well, I'm, I'm a celebrity. Come dine with me. That's not self-proclaimed. It happened.
0: Well, that's a reality television show. A lot of people would just call that BS. Mm-hmm. As a self-proclaimed foodie do your girls you said your youngest one has a passion for food mm-hmm. is that from you have you instilled that into her or is that something she's picked up along the way because your girls are Melbourneian
1: yeah one it's hard not Canberra to dislike seen. food um, I think she likes to eat healthy food and so she decided that she needs to cook it herself so she's learned taught herself to do it which is I think it the, the love of food is a genetic thing I think. I, she's think picked, so. I think she's picked it up from me. Where did you pick it up from?
0: My, my mum. Yeah. I mean, dad wasn't a phenomenal cook, but we did grow up in the hospitality industry. But my mum was always a great cook, but dessert she was fabulous at, mm-hmm. pavlovas. Um, but I think when I moved to Melbourne is when it really started for me. Like, I became obsessed because the, there was so much on offer here. That well, you, you had
1: a love affair with your butcher. <laughs> in, in the broad sense
0: Yes, not, not in Not the personal, literally, no. Yeah, exactly No, no, I love the Paran markets mm-hmm. I can't get enough And in fact, I loved it so much That I ended up renting a house That backed onto the Paran market So I never had to drive there I'd get that trolley And just walk out my back door
1: Oh, I think the food scene in Melbourne With its markets is extraordinary I mean, that's the one It's uh, a thing that Sydney doesn't really have uh, And I'm now living on the Mornington Peninsula There's a a farm gate down there which produces uh, all of this organic fruit and vegetable, which is seasonal, which is Where's another that? thing I like. Uh, it's on uh, Bonio Road down at uh, yeah. the back of the uh. gallery. Uh, it's called Hawks Fruit and Vegetable. And the guys that run that, they probably provide, without exaggeration, 30 or 40% of Melbourne's fruit and vegetables from this area, and then they sell at this venue. Uh, and on Saturday and Sunday what they have – Um, is a chip van where they have thrice-cooked potato chips. Now, these are to die for with their local potatoes. So the potatoes dug out of the paddock next to the shed, bloke has a big potato-cutting machine, bang, cooks them three times in oil and sells them to you with salt on top. Unbelievable. But their fruit and veg is just extraordinary. So we're very well served in Melbourne. South Melbourne market, Pran market, Vic market is still really good, although they're buggering around with what they're going to do with the future of the Vic market. If they touch that... Uh, whatever council's involved in that mm. needs to be sacked because it's a, such a sacrosanct place of Melbourne that they can't really stuff that up. And you go further out, Preston Market, Many Ponds Market. There are markets everywhere with food in them. Not I'm not talking about clothes markets, food markets. Melbourne's probably as well served as any city in the world.
0: Absolutely. Also South Australia, some beautiful, beautiful Adelaide places. Adelaide Central Market. Uh, yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. Wine Country. Some beautiful wine wine uh, wineries out there. Now, you left 2GB. Uh, well, you've been
1: doing research. What? You. You've been researching.
0: Well, yeah. This mm-hmm. is an interview. <laughs> okay. I've got to know stuff about you. <laughs> uh You left 2GB and 4BC Radio last year.
1: And 3 ow don't forget.
0: And there have lots, of, lots of numbers and yes. letters. Yes. Um, do you miss the boozy lunches that sort of. Come hand in hand with that sort of thing. No,
1: well I was doing afternoon radio and nighttime radio, so boozy lunches were not something that I, I ever got to do anyway. You, but you
0: strike me as a bit of a boozy lunch. Well, you and I had guy. one
1: big boozy lunch, which yeah. ended, ended poorly <laughs> for one of us. Not you. <laughs> uh, you. Not you, but me. Have you
0: ever shared that story with anybody? No, I
1: don't intend to.
0: Oh, come on. No. Let's do a little scoop.
1: No, we don't All need to right. end up in confidential this weekend. To... <laughs> Thank you. Well, it,
0: it was you, me, Dane Swan and uh, Nazim. Nazim, Yes. And it was fun.
1: One of us had a fi- uh, too much to drink and had to stumble on the way home. Let's just leave it at that. Let's,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah. it wasn't me. No. And it wasn't it was, Dane. No. And it wasn't Nazim. It was me. I'm <laughs> confessing. But that's it. We're not going any further.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, so, no, boozy lunches, apart from that, not... Something that you. Well, in the
1: 80s and 70s, they were huge. I mean, yeah. I remember when I went first to Sydney in 2002 uh, to do the breakfast show. I took over from Alan Jones, and John Laws was doing mornings. And Lawsy would often, with that magnificent voice of his, say, Stephen, I think we should do lunch today. And so you would jump in John Laws's Aston Martin, and he would roar off to. Woolamaloo uh, park his car in his 16-car garage at the oh end of the woolamaloo Pier, and off we would go uh, to one of the restaurants on the pier there. And that lunch would normally, he would go home and you would be instructed to go and sit at his personal table, uh, which you did, and there would be an a, a silver ice bucket full of ice, naturally, and two bottles of Chardonnay. And the waiter would pour you a glass and say, Mr. Laws will be here shortly.
0: Where did, where did he go? What's he doing? Well, he doing? went home
1: to get changed. He oh, would go and God. put on his luncheon outfit and attire. And then he would wander down the wharf from his place at the end. So he lives in an apartment at the end of Woolamaloo Pier uh, above Russell Crowe.
0: Yeah, Russell I know Crow's the place. There,
1: great spot. And um, John would arrive and he would uh, consume those two bottles of Chardonnay with you and then Normally be a bottle of Pinot Noir, probably. And then he had this evil digestive drink called a Verna, uh, which is an Italian digestive, Mm -hmm. which is very strong alcoholically. Um, So you'd have an Averna with ice and lemon to finish the meal. Uh, He would then summon his uh, gopher uh, to take the cover off his boat, which (laughs) is moored at the front of the restaurant, next to the restaurant. And he would say, would you like a lift home? as I lived across the harbour from there. And I said, yeah, that's fine. I could barely walk at this stage. <laughs> he would then get, he wouldn't drive the boat, but he would get his, uh, his his go-to man to take the boat out. We would motor out into the middle of the harbour and you'd think lunch is over, but no, he would instruct this man to anchor the boat under the harbour bridge oh so God. that you could see the bridge and the opera house. And he would pull out the wild turkey and you would sit on the back of John's boat and, drink wild turkey for an hour or so, then he would drop me at a pier in Neutral Bay and I had quite a steep street to walk up to get back to my place and John would disappear into the sunset and I would hopefully stumble free, end up at home at some point (laughs) after five or six hours. So that didn't happen every week, but it happened quite regularly and was uh, one of my more pleasant memories of working in that radio station.
0: I really wish sometimes that I was born back in those days because... You guys had fun. Like, that's good quality fun. Yeah. That's rich fun, that is.
1: Well, Darren Hinch famously would always, every Friday, uh, at one of South Melbourne's hotels, uh, the Golden Gate, he would, for years, hold court there. Then when he got more successful, Darren would have a private room at the Flower Drum and invite various people. I was working in newspapers at the time, and so he was trying to keep in good with the people who ran the newspaper. So Neil Mitchell was the editor of the Melbourne Herald and I was the deputy editor. And Darren said one day to us, why don't we go to the flower drum for lunch? And Neil and I thought, it was pretty flash. Neil and I couldn't afford to go to the flower drum, but Darren clearly could. <laughs> so he said, I'll send a car to pick you up. And so we're standing out on the corner of Flinders Street and Exhibition Street at the old Herald building. Round the corner comes this blue Rolls Royce with a blonde chauffeur, Fema. Oh, yes. Fema. Yeah. So, is that Mr. Mitchell, Mr. Price, uh, this is Darren's car. I'm going to drop you at the flower drum. And off we went there and probably emerged after dinner. That's how long lunch would last. You, and Darren did that every day.
0: You would hang out with some movers and shakers. Who is probably the most well-known slash famous person that you've ever had lunch with? Or... What's the most extravagant lunch experience that you've ever had?
1: They are very hard questions without any notice. Um,
0: Well, you're a...
1: Extravagant lunches, they happen quite regularly. I remember uh, the Melbourne Herald, we once redesigned the paper. And uh, at the end of the redesign process, which took about three months, we went again back to the flower drum and took all of the people involved in the design process to dinner. And these are guys who worked as uh, printers and guys who were typographers and sub-editors. Guys had never even walked past the flower drum, let alone been in there. So we're there for about three hours and we get near to the end of the night. And I said to the uh, late Les Carline, who was one of the great journalists of Australia, great racing writer, great editor, great man. Do you think we can order a bottle of Grange, Les? He said, yeah, that's fine. No problem. So... I said to the waiter, can you bring us a, a bottle of Grange? Which would have been even back then, and this is in the 80s, would have been three or $400 a bottle. Mm. And I turned to the sub-editor next to me and said, um, would you like a glass of Grange Hermitage? And he said, is that white or red? And I said, oh. "Right, we've had enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to leave now. No. Mm. That's Ugh. when we knew we'd had enough to drink. <laughs> But I guess the most uh, most interesting lunch, again, Sydney. Sydney's a different town to Melbourne. Mm. When I first went there to take over from Alan Jones, I got a phone call from the Premier, Bob Carr, who said, uh, I'd like you to come to lunch. I'd like you to come to lunch. He spoke <laughs> a bit like John Laws. Um, bad impersonation, that. And so I turn up at Phillips Street, which is where the Premier and Cabinet office was, went up to, I think, about the 38th floor, and Bob Carr had a private dining room in that building uh, with his own kitchen and his own bathroom and bedroom in his, in the premier's office with a gun barrel view straight down Sydney Harbour. And we sat down and he is famously Bob was vegetarian. He said, I could order whatever I wanted, quite beautiful wines put on the table. And he said, um, now you've been going on on air about, on your radio about law and order and how we've, it's out of control and there's drugs and stuff in Cabramatta and we're not doing enough You know, you keep banging on about it. And I said, Because it's a huge problem. You're not you're not fixing it. You've got criminals roaming the streets, Bob. It's just not working. Okay. So he picks the phone up and says, Can you send him in, please? So in comes the police minister.
0: Oh god. Who sits
1: at the end of the table (laughs) and the Premier says, This is as you know, this is Steve. He thinks you're doing a really bad job. (laughs) Just shaking my head thinking Thanks for tipping me into that, Bob. So awkward. That's Sydney, though. That's a very Sydney thing.
0: It's very different in Sydney. Lastly, Pricey, uh, death row. uh, If you happen to find yourself on it one day uh, for something scandalous in the media, perhaps, what would be your last meal?
1: We had to nominate our last meal, didn't we, when we came out of the jungle? I don't think I chose particularly well. Mm. So I think that would have probably changed. I'm going to go for... Slow-roasted lamb shoulder Mm -hmm. with roasted potatoes. Uh, I don't think I need anything more sophisticated than that. That's it. And a really good bottle of red wine.
0: Grange Hermitage?
1: No, Pinot with lamb.
0: Okay, delightful. Well, good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Oh, sometimes I wish I was a boomer. Oh, wait. Mind you, they did have some fun back then. My mate Steve Price, broadcaster and journalist, regular on the project, and Triple M Hot Breakfast in Melbourne. He's done it again, Pricey. Good old angry cat. Thanks again for listening, guys, to Tuesdays with me, Ash Pollard. All thanks to my favourite sponsor, Red Energy. Now's the time to switch to a 100% Australian electricity and gas retailer. Call 131 806.
1: If you enjoyed Tuesday with Ash Pollard, then check
0: out the other podcasts in the Red Energy Lifestyle Series. For all things parenting, enjoy Mum Plus One with Joe Stanley.
1: I have to admit, at the height of coronavirus lockdown,
0: I gave up on all screen time restrictions. 100% Australian electricity and gas. That's Red Energy. Thanks for listening to Tuesday with Ash Pollard, part of the Red Energy Podcast Lifestyle Series, available on your favourite podcast platform and the SEO. Yeah. at